production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. John Howard served as Australia's 25th Prime Minister. After 11 years in office, he became the second longest serving Australian PM. During his term, he achieved nationwide gun control legislation and significant reforms in industrial relations and taxation. John Howard was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President George W. Bush in Washington. It is America's highest civilian honour. And in 2012, Queen Elizabeth II appointed him a member of the Order of Merit. This conversation is deeply meaningful. We discuss what it takes to lead a country in its most powerful position, comforting a grieving nation after the Bali bombings and the Boxing Day tsunami, and the importance of meaningful connections. I decided to um, go for the maximum, which was a a ban on automatic and semi-automatic weapons. It was difficult for some people, but it did have, despite the pushback in sections of the bush, it did have majority support. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. John Howard is the author of many books, including his autobiography, Lazarus Rising, which has become the best-selling political memoir in Australian history. He has also just released the book, A Sense of Balance. When I started this podcast, I never thought I'd be interviewing one of Australia's most well-respected former Prime Ministers. To share Mr Howard's story and insights today is an absolute honour. My hope is that this episode leaves you inspired, uplifted and reminds you of life's bigger picture and higher promise. Mr Howard, welcome. You are Australia's 25th and second longest serving Prime Minister. You grew up in Sydney. Your parents owned a petrol station. Can you tell us a bit about your younger years? I grew up in a suburb called Elwood, which you'd, I suppose loosely describe as a lower middle class suburb. Um, I went to the local government public schools, we call them in Sydney. I think you call them same in Melbourne. And uh, then I went to uh, Canterbury Boys High School, which was um, a rough equivalent of, 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 of University High or Melbourne High in uh, yes. Melbourne, a selective high school. And um, I was the youngest of four boys family. Uh, I had the usual sporting interests, uh, although I did grow up at a time in Sydney when there was no Australian rules played there. It was, uh, there was this is long before um, the, the Sydney Swans. So it was all uh, rugby league, rugby union and soccer. I played rugby, both codes of rugby at school and I played quite a bit of soccer after I left school. It's always very interested in sport and of course my greatest sporting passion was cricket. Not that I was much good at it, but I continued to have an enormous affection. And I grew up in a family that uh, was very pro-liberal. My father was a a member of the Liberal Party, wasn't an active member, too busy running his small business. And uh, uh, I grew up believing in the importance of small business and individual enterprise and uh, uh, getting off uh, your, your tail and working for yourself, uh, that was a virtue which was greatly encouraged. So you can understand why I drifted towards the Liberal Party. <laughs> but I had a happy upbringing and my father died quite young. I, mean, I was only 16, but mm. he'd been a veteran of World War One, and, had, you know, like so many of those 
blokes. So, yeah, their health was never the same after they came back, those who did come back. So, but that um, was the sort of background I had. I went to the pictures, as we used to call them. Yes. The movies, they call them now. That was the principal entertainment, Saturday night. Uh, I used to go to the pictures with my parents and one of my older brothers. In those days, you got you got two feature movies, full length movies. <laughs> uh, you'd shortchange now. <laughs> How did your mum go after your dad passed away? As you said, you were just a teenager. I was sixteen when my father died, and my mother and I, and, and my other brother lived uh, in the house for a while, and then. Bob married some years later, and then uh, Mum and I were together for quite a while. But uh, that was just uh, inevitable, and uh, she did a fantastic job. Both my parents did fantastic jobs. They they were a very hard-working generation. They lived through, and in the case my father had served in one of the two world wars and had lived through the Depression. They were tough years for that generation, and it's amazing that they achieved what they did. You went on to study law and became a solicitor. Mm. And what made you want to go into politics? Well, I was always interested in world affairs. It's hard to... It's not right to say that one particular incident um, grabbed my attention. I just grew up in a household that talked politics. I was the youngest in the family, so therefore... um, uh, I was involved in discussions around the dinner table about politics from quite an early age, and we were a family that talked about these things mm. uh, quite a lot. And um, as a result, um, it was a perfectly natural thing for me to be attracted increasingly to politics. Do you think it's important reflecting on your life for people and families in this day and age to discuss those sort of things with their children? Yes, I do, but it depends entirely upon uh, what helps keep a family together. Yeah. Uh, if, if if children are, are not interested in talking about those <laughs> things, well, obviously parents are sort of going down a bit of a blind alley as they try and, and uh, talk about it all the time. It, it, it'll just vary from family to family. But uh, I certainly appreciated the fact that from an early age, um, I was encouraged to understand what was going on in mm. the world. I was encouraged to have a point of view. And uh, it was a point of view that was obviously conditioned by the uh, attitudes that my parents had. Yes. You won your seat of Benelong in 1974 and then had many roles in government. You were the Minister of Business and Consumer Affairs, Treasurer, Deputy Leader of the Opposition, as well as some other roles. And in 1996, against Paul Keating, you won and became Australia's 25th Prime Minister. For a man that's dedicated most of his life to politics... How was that moment? Oh, well, it was an exhilarating moment. It was a a moment also that um, uh, filled me with a lot of uh, opportunity and uh, hope. I was very optimistic about what could be done. I've always been and I remain a great optimist about Australia. Mm. I I didn't believe that um, uh, Australia's best years were behind her. I thought, and I still think our best years are ahead of us, and you've got to be optimistic about this country. It's got so much going for it. But it was a tremendous uh, challenge. It was a humbling experience, uh, uh, and I didn't really know what lay ahead. I didn't know how long I'd be there. I didn't know what challenges I would face, and I learned pretty quickly that when you become prime minister of any country, and not least Australia, that you can have unexpected events and unexpected Mm. challenges and um, uh, that certainly happened. One of the immediate challenges I had was the tragedy of that lone gunman who uh, murdered 35 people at Port Arthur and that happened within six weeks of my Mm. becoming Prime Minister and it was a 
slap bang against a, a really challenging issue that gripped the country for very understandable reasons. It's it's a really interesting thing because when people reflect on your leadership, that is a big thing that they talk about in such a positive way, and especially looking at America and all of the shootings, the mass shootings that have happened there. And they're so grateful to you to have moved so swiftly on that to change the gun control rules and introducing a buyback scheme. But at the time, you got a lot of pushback. And I remember from your party, Warren Trust said that you were not willing to make these little compromises. Why was this so important to you? This was very important to me, and I'll come back to some of the pushback. This was very important to me because I had just been elected with an enormous majority. I had a majority of 44 seats out of 150, which was a huge majority. And this was the largest single death toll from a single shooting incident in history. 35 people at the hands of one gunman. And I thought to myself, um, what is the point of being in power if you're not willing to uh, use the authority of an office? such as Prime Minister, which you've just acquired, and at a time when there was an enormous goodwill towards the new government. There'd been a big shift of public opinion, and even Labor people, most of them would say, well, we didn't vote for him, but we'll give him a go. And that's normally the attitude. And I just felt if I didn't do something and didn't use the huge majority I had and the moral authority that carried with it, then uh, I, I would be rightly marked down as not having matched the national interest. And so I decided to um, go for the maximum, which was a a ban on automatic and semi-automatic weapons. Um, It was difficult for some people, but it did have, despite the pushback in sections of the bush, it did have majority support, Mm -hmm. had very strong support in the cities and very, very strong support amongst women not exclusively amongst women, but certainly they, to this day, I still get lots of women who say to me, gee, I, I wouldn't vote for you, my life depended on it, but you, you were right about guns. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and that happened to me on quite a number of occasions. But it, it was tough for some of my rural and National Party colleagues mm. because um, they had many people who were farmers who had guns as part of their uh, uh, everyday activities, they would say, we haven't done anything wrong. We Mm -hmm. keep our guns uh, in a safe place. Uh, Why should we be victimised because of this lunatic? And that was understandable. But the only thing you could possibly do was to go the whole hog, to ban all automatic, semi-automatic weapons. And at the time... I don't think we would have achieved what we did achieve without the understanding of people like Tim Fisher and John Anderson and uh, and Rob Borbich, the National Party Premier of Queensland. He was the one National Party Premier and it was tough for them and for a lot of Liberal people who held country seats. And we did have the support of the Labor Party, let me acknowledge that. Yeah. They, they were. Kim Beasley was the opposition leader at the time and he was very supportive. So it shouldn't be seen just in terms of the pushback from sections of the bush, although there was, and I think the uh, gun policies I introduced probably helped give birth to One Nation. Mm. You went to talk at in sale to a lot of the farmers, and I mean, for people who haven't seen this, at the time you were against these farmers who were holding up signs saying Hitler Howard and you were told to wear a bulletproof vest, which you've spoken about regretting that. And I wonder now reflecting on the former prime minister who was killed in, in Japan, uh, do, you, do you still regret that? Oh, I do. I I was very upset about what happened to Mr Abe. Yeah. I knew Mr Abe well. I liked him a lot. And um, I felt very sorry for what happened to him. 
I was advised to wear the bulletproof vest, and as I've written, I an initially rejected that advice, but I was finally persuaded to do so by one of my closest advisors and good friends, Graeme Morris, who was my chief of staff at the time. And Graeme said, "You know, how do I, if something does happen, how do I explain to Jeanette and the children yeah. that you know you've knocked back my our advice?" So in the end, I, I succumbed to that and I, I wore it, but I, I still regret it afterwards because, to be perfectly honest, I never felt unsafe mm. in Australia. No matter how hostile some demonstrations were, and I encountered a lot of very hostile mm. demonstrations, people who objected to our policies like waterfront reform and, and, and taxation reform and industrial relations changes, there were plenty of people who, who, who despised me and my politics, but I never felt unsafe. And uh, so to this day, I feel a bit regretful that I did wear that bulletproof vest because it perhaps might have been seen by some as an insult to the law-abiding instincts of most people. But anyway, that's what I did. Mm. I never wore one again. Um, and. I felt that no matter how unpopular I might have been, and I was very unpopular at various times because of certain issues, that um, I could always walk the streets of Australia and, and without fear of uh, serious harm being done. Plenty of insults. And they stopped at tomatoes. <laughs> what is it? about Australia that made you always feel safe? Because deep down we are a very balanced country. Yes. Um, uh, one of the things I greatly admire about uh, Australia is that we have a great sense of balance. We get the midpoint, the sweet spot. Mm. I often think of the social welfare provision in Australia and compare it with America and Europe. Some aspects of the American social welfare system are too harsh and people can get left without any means of support and it, it does drive some of them into crime to survive yes. and to help their families survive. On the other hand, uh, some European countries smother people with uh, uh, too much support and uh, therefore individuals don't have the incentive to look after themselves and they think, oh, well, the government will look after me. and. I think it, it impedes the economic efficiencies. But we seem to, I think, have struck quite a balance. And, and I think we have in so many policy areas got that sense of balance. I agree. And you do write a lot about that in your new book, A Sense of Balance. And I'd love to know, what are your thoughts on America's gun laws and the mass deaths from firearms that they have there? Well, I feel very sorry uh, uh, for America because it's very hard uh, to deal with this issue. There's, a, there's an entirely different history mm. and a different culture. We have to remember that, that, that um, America achieved her independence uh, through a revolutionary war. We have to remember that America fought a terrible civil war uh, in the uh, 1860s and it's still the case, I believe, that more people died in the Civil War in America than would later die in all the conflicts in which America would be involved, World War One, World War Two, and Korea, Vietnam, and so forth. So they're different. And it's part of the American psyche that people should have a right to bear arms mm. to protect themselves, not only against individuals, but also against uh, uh, overweening governments. And it is a different culture. We don't feel that we need to protect ourselves against some uh, domestic um, force that's going to take away our freedoms. Mm. We've done rather better in many respects in producing a country that's peaceful and united. And America um, is a very different country. The, the differences are much greater between our two societies than many imagine. We think because we speak the same language and we're, uh, we're entertained uh, largely in a common way uh, and, and we have some sporting similarities, not too many, but um, I'm glad we don't play American football <laughs> much. But uh, 
uh, nonetheless, we are really quite different. And, yes. Uh, yeah. And I'm I'm very reluctant to uh, um, you know, really lecture Americans about gun laws. Yeah. Whenever there's a tragedy there, people, the media get in touch with me and say, you know, what advice have you got? I say, I don't have any advice except you have to try, according to your own processes, to alter the laws. Um, I'm just glad that I was able to do what I did in Australia because it was my responsibility to attend to things in Australia, not to give lectures to other countries. Yes. I interview a lot of Americans and recently... I interviewed a lady who ran for the American presidency, Marianne Williamson, and she said that you did a fantastic job with the gun laws. So there are a lot of people looking at our country. So you've got to remember we're 25 million. Yeah, yes. America's 325. I know. And we forget that. Like, states, if you think the states take themselves too seriously in Australia, America is at a new level because... The Civil War was, although the trigger was um, uh, slavery and, and, and Lincoln and the North were absolutely on the right side of history in the stance they took, the, it was about the rights of states. Yeah. So they feel very keenly about it. And they have a very different and I think inferior constitutional arrangement. Mm. Too many things in America are decided by the courts. Yes. Well, it should be decided by parliaments, not by the courts. Talking about that, in your new book, as I mentioned, A Sense of Balance, you talk a lot about Australia's relations with the US and America being our major ally. And I wonder, what are your thoughts about the Roe v. Wade abortion laws? I'll put aside for one moment differences of opinion on the merits of the issue. Put that one side. What is really important is how you determine the law. Yeah. And in Australia, the law is determined by Parliament and the Parliament acting as a representative for the people. In America, Roe v. Wade was a decision of the Supreme Court mm. and it was inevitable that it wouldn't resolve the issue because people who were unhappy with what the Supreme Court decided in Roe v. Wade back in the early 70s, those people would always remain unhappy. Now that that decision has been overturned, a whole lot of other people are unhappy. I think that if those issues are clearly determined by the people either directly in a vote on the issue or indirectly through their representatives in Parliament, then you get some kind of, is that terrible overworked expression, some kind of closure on the issue. People think, well, I'm not happy with the outcome, but everybody had a say and the majority were in favour of it. I mean, we had a debate on same-sex marriage several years ago. Now, I voted in the in the rather shabby, you know, I, I thought inadequate plebiscite, I voted no, but... I accept the outcome. And if we'd have had a proper plebiscite, which was blocked because the Labor Party and the other opposition parties in the Senate uh, in a fit of pike said, well, we're not going to agree to a vote, which I thought was very undemocratic. Um, uh, if we'd have had a formal vote, a full plebiscite, the outcome wouldn't have been any different. Mm. You'd have still probably had 60s. 59% voting yes and the others voting no, but I accept it. As somebody who, who, whose vote was in a minority, I accept the decision. Whereas if that had been decided by a court in Australia, I'd have really objected. I'd have thought, well, this is not something for judge. What right of seven judges to, to impose their view? And this is all a result of America having a Bill of Rights now. Bill of Rights sounds fantastic. Oh, yeah, you list all the rights that people have. That's what they did in the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s. I think we all know what happened there. Yeah. And and, and the uh, Soviet Union used to have an impressive Bill of Rights. We all know what happened there too. Um, the only way you can really uh, preserve Australian democracy is to keep our robust parliamentary system, <clears throat> keep the courts 
adjudicating on what the law is, not making the law up, uh, and have a free and open media. Now, we've got those three things. We don't need a Bill of Rights, and we certainly don't need the American approach to deciding these issues. Now, I've said all of that without expressing a view either way uh, on on the substance of the Roe v. Wade debate, I, and uh, but uh, simply because I, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm a Democrat. I, I believe that, uh, not in the American sense, let me say, but uh, I, I believe very much that these issues should be decided by people. And uh, if you let the public through their parliamentary representatives decide issues, then you'll get acceptance. But if you hand it over to courts, heaven forbid. Yeah. Do you look at the states now, though, and seeing the outcome of that and think it was quite backwards? I mean, it seems... Yes, but, but look, uh, no, I can't... I mean, depends on what your point of view is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my point is that you will always have a whole group of people on an issue like that feeling that a court decision is backward mm. because they will say, that's not what I want, that's not what um, all, all the people I know want. But if you have a vote, you'll get some kind of resolution. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, this is what Americans, in my opinion, fail to understand. I think it's one of the reasons why you have such a poor turnout in um, elections yes. in America. Um, uh, I did a calculation, I think I mentioned it in my book, that since World War II, the average turnout in British elections has been something like 71, 72%, and in America it's been something like 56 or mm. 57 presidential elections. Now, both countries have voluntary voting. And what that means to me is that um, there's a lot of Americans who don't see any point in voting because uh, no matter they think themselves, no matter what I um, want, uh, the courts will decide something differently, and I resent that. And we see courts as resolving um, differences in in the civil law, commercial yeah. differences, those sorts of things, or, or dealing with criminal matters. We don't see the courts as telling us whether we should have abortion or not have abortion. Uh, and and I, I can say without any fear of contradiction that many people in Australia who I know that are unhappy with our present abortion laws, they accept nonetheless mm. that if those laws are to be changed, in other words, made tighter, then they have to persuade political parties and persuade parliament to change them. They accept that um, they're not going to change unless the will of the public alters, and that is how it should be. But that is not what it is in America, and that's why they have such an unsatisfactory outcome. Mm. I think we have a far superior constitutional approach to these matters than our American friends. Yes. I feel that quite strongly. And I hope we never have a Bill of Rights in Australia. It'll retard our freedom. It won't expand it. Talking about America, you were very close friends and you may still be close friends with former President George Bush and you you stayed at his ranch just before 9-11. You were giving a press conference next door to the Pentagon whilst it was being attacked. I mean, how was that time for you? Well, I was in America. I happened to be in Washington the day of the attack. Yeah. Actually stayed with President Bush uh, later on. Uh, but... I, I, well, it was a complete shock. I had been invited to go to America um, uh, by the president to um, address a joint sitting of Congress to mark the 50th anniversary of the ANZUS Treaty that had been signed in San Francisco in 1951 between Australia, New Zealand and the United States. And uh, it was just before I gave that news conference that I got word that, that the two planes had flown into the World Trade Centre and I knew then, everybody did, that uh, this was something pretty terrible and and um, earth-shattering. And then I, during the news conference, um, dealing mainly with Australian matters, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm interested that at that particular news conference I was questioned largely about domestic Australian issues. I, I don't recall invoking... Uh, the convention that is now invoked by Australian Prime Ministers saying when they're overseas uh, they don't talk about domestic matters. I, that sort of 
didn't exist then. I'm not sure that that's a very good rule. I mean, you either, uh, in modern communications, you know what happens in your own country even when you're out of it. But I, I remember that day and it was an extraordinary day and um, um, it had a big impact on me and it had an incredible impact on the American people and there was a terrible loss of life. I mean, we, the 3,000 people died in the World Trade Center and uh, 20 of them were Australians. Uh, so we were very directly touched. And so many of them were young, uh, working in financial services and other uh, occupations. And uh, But the stoicism of the American people was very impressive. And um, for months after that event, people lived in fear of another attack. Mm. It's just forgotten. The preoccupation of Americans for months afterwards was when will the next attack occur? And when those attacks occurred on the uh, 9-11, I thought, most people thought, well, where, is this the beginning yeah. of a series of attacks? Will there now be an attack in the next day or so on London or Paris or Tokyo or Sydney or Johannesburg and you know, whatever, Berlin, whatever. Uh, and uh, that was the nature. It changed the world permanently. Are you still friends with the former president? Oh, yes. We keep in touch. I used to see him quite a bit when um, on, on, there was a period of time after I was prime minister. One of our sons was living in Dallas and I used we used to go there quite regularly. He's not living there now. He's back in, in Sydney. But... Um, we used to see President Bush and have a meal and catch up and uh, we still remain in touch, although I don't now go as frequently as I used to to Dallas. But in, we're, we're good friends. He was a, a, uh, a very good person to do with. He was a no-nonsense sort of fellow. Um, he, uh, he, he always had a firm view about things and uh, I liked him a lot. And his very charming wife as well. Yes. You were the Prime Minister of Australia, as we mentioned, for 11 years. How important was connection to you inside your cabinet and with the Australian people? Oh, well, it was very important. One of the things you've, you've got to try and uh, do as a Prime Minister is to understand yeah. the mood of the people on difficult issues. And sometimes you can get it right. Uh, I must have got some things right because I stayed there a few times, won four elections, so it was probably a, some indication that um, I got a few things right. But you, you have to uh, try and understand what people want and make a judgment as to whether what they want agrees with what you think is appropriate and if it is, well, that's good. If it's not, then you have to ask yourself, is it something that I can persuade people to do differently? And I mean, I, take something like tax reform, which is one of the huge things we did. Looked at in isolation, and nobody really wanted a, a GST in isolation on top of what was there at the time. Nobody wanted that. But what people did feel was that our tax system wasn't working well. <clears throat> what we set about to do was to explain that in order to make our tax system work mm. well, we had to make a lot of changes. And one of those changes was a, a GST. And um, in that way, uh, we were able to take the public with us. Uh, and we had a lot of support from different groups in the community and sections of the business community who wanted to um, see a better tax system and had some good ideas. And many of the social welfare organisations uh, uh, understood uh, the need for a change in the system, but they wanted to make sure that in changing the system, we didn't hurt vulnerable people. And I thought that was fair enough. I didn't want to hurt vulnerable people either. Mm. Um, and because uh, uh, it's easy to absorb change if you've got money in the bank. It's very hard to absorb adverse change. It's impossible if you don't. And that was a guiding principle of what we were doing when we were changing the tax system. 
Your tenure as Prime Minister saw the Bali bombings, the Boxing Day tsunami. As the leader of the country at the time, the people are turning to you for some sort of comfort. And how do you connect with your country, with the families of loved ones who have perished during that time? Well, you do it in two ways. In the public statements you make, you try and express the sorrow, the outrage, the collective grief, all of those things. And that's very important. And you have to do your best to uh, summon the words. And I, I found on those occasions that um, uh, there was no uh, particular formula of words. And I, I didn't ask other people uh, for advice on that. I just said what I felt. And I hope mm. those general words were adequate. And in having contact with people who've lost loved ones and and, and it's a very important part of the responsibility. I remember immediately after the um, Bali attack going there and spending a lot of time with people whose husband, son, wife had just been killed brutally. Uh, and uh, it, it was difficult, but you know, so much more difficult for them mm. than for any of us. And uh, you just have to make a human judgment some people want a handshake and um, direct look in the eyes. Others want to hug you. You just have to make a judgment and, and respond as best you can. And I felt incredibly sorry for those people. And so many of them who were killed were there on end of football season holidays. A large number of the 88 Australians who were killed in Bali, they, they were footballers who finish the season mm. of Australian rules or whatever. And uh, I mean, there were older people as well, but there are a lot of young people. Bali's always been uh, party central for a lot of Australians. And uh, they, they are challenging occasion, but they're part of the job and you have to engage yourself in, in an authentic way. And I can only hope uh, that I did that to the best of my ability. You can't do more mm. than that. Obama talks about his years in the White House and and he goes back to his hardest and most emotional moment being when he had to talk to the Sandy Hook parents who lost their children in that massacre. And I, I wonder for you, when you f- reflect on your time as Prime Minister, what was the hardest moment for you emotionally? Oh, I think Bali was... Bali was terrible. And we had a, you know, there was a couple of very difficult um, military accidents. There was one of the Sea King helicopters went down and a number of young servicemen were killed. And we had a memorial service for that and had the families back at the lodge. And they were very difficult. I mean, I felt very touched uh, and very sorry for people whose young you know, children to them, young men to the rest of us had uh, volunteered and their lives had been taken uh, in in an accident. And being very shortly after I became Prime Minister, there was a, a helicopter a crash in, in Townsville and a number of young sailors and soldiers were killed there. And they are difficult moments, but they're infinitely more difficult for uh, the mums and dads mm. and uh, boyfriends, wives, husbands. Um, they're tough, but part of the job. And I could understand how President Obama felt about that because that was a terrible massacre and the tragedy is in the eyes of so many Americans, not a lot has changed mm. with their laws since that, that occurred because you do worry if you've got children at school. That, yeah. Now, that's not something that, people have to worry about in Australia, thank heaven. Obviously, as you mentioned, the people who are impacted, the mothers and the fathers and the boyfriends, husbands, wives, etc., they are taking the brunt. But still for you, you are the Prime Minister of the country and you are sitting so intimately with these people as they're in their grieving in, in their darkest days. When you go to bed at night, how do you deal with that? 
Well, it varied. Um, uh, you know, I'm not a, um, you know, I, I can, you know, I, I accept, I mean, I accept the job. And, and one of the things that I made very clear when we committed our troops to the intervention in East Timor mm. was to say that I hope that people in the community who didn't agree, and this was even more so in relation to Iraq, which was controversial. The East Timor intervention was not so controversial in the sense that most people agreed with it, but Iraq was very controversial. Mm. And I didn't want um, uh, people of uh, Islamic background to suffer, um, people of Islamic background who were part of the Australian community, they deserve to be treated properly like everybody else. And I, and I said that if people who disagreed with what we were doing, please blame me and blame my government. Don't blame the soldiers. Because I remembered as a younger person that when some of our troops came back from Vietnam, because that was a controversial mm. military involvement, some people who opposed our involvement in Vietnam took it out on the soldiers. And I thought that was monstrous wrong. They were doing their duty and they were doing what they were directed to do by their government and that's what they signed up to accept and I didn't want that to occur and uh, I hope it didn't because in the end the ultimate responsibility does rest with the Prime Minister. Uh, in all of the military involvements we committed ourselves to, I did have very, very strong support from my Cabinet colleagues. Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor, Solomon Islands, um, and so on. But I knew that ultimately, if I had said, no, this is a bad idea, they'd have gone along with it. Mm. They ultimately said, well, you're, you're, you're in charge and it, it's ultimately your call. But they gave it terrific support. You served as our Prime Minister, as we said, for a very long time. Is there ever a moment where you think, this is, this is all too much? No, I never felt that. I, every day of it, I felt it was an enormous privilege, it was a challenge, an enormous privilege. Uh, I didn't like uh, the outcome of the 2007 election, but I accepted it. And um, we had a seamless transfer of power mm. from one side to the other. And, uh, I, and after the last election, even though it didn't involve me in a personal sense, it involved my party losing, I wrote to the new Prime Minister to congratulate him and said, for the sake of the country, I hope your government does well. And uh, I said, we should all be proud that we can have a seamless transfer of power yeah. in Australia. Something I'm sorry to say did not occur in America. And I, I mm. um, found the behaviour of the former President Donald Trump appalling, his unwillingness to accept the verdict of the people. That's You just have to accept it. I mean, I've had both experiences. I led the Liberal Party on on, on something like um, uh, to six elections. Um, I won four of them and lost two of them. <coughs> and I liked the four and I didn't like the two, <coughs> particularly the last one, because I had been Prime Minister there for almost 12 years. But that's the system we mm. have. And unless both sides of politics, the winners, the losers, and the also-rans honour the outcome. Our democracy breaks down. Mm. You mentioned Trump before, and I wonder, is it bizarre to you to see that he came into power and might potentially come into power again? I, I mean, what are your views on I him? hope the Republican Party chooses somebody else. Yeah. Um, there were many things that Donald Trump did that were good. Um, he, I think, generally ran the American economy or his government yeah. did quite well. I thought he achieved some breakthroughs in the Middle East between some of the Arab states in Israel that nobody had achieved. Yes. And I give him full marks for that. I thought he showed a great deal of um, courage in um, tackling the... Um, the Syrians, after they 
crossed what Obama had called the red line um, and uh, he actually did something about it. Now, that were the good things. So I thought he handled the pandemic appallingly, mm. his rambling press conferences. I compared them with Scott Morrison. There was no comparison. And I guess on balance, um, if I had been an American, which I wasn't, it's purely speculation, I probably on balance would have voted for him uh, in 2020 because I, I felt that the current president was starting to show signs of not being up to the job. Mm. But Trump's behaviour after the election, particularly the way in which he so obviously put completely unreasonable pressure on his vice president, uh, a thoroughly decent, loyal man, was a terrible. Yeah. And it just, in my opinion, makes him unfit to ever occupy that office again. And I hope that he uh, does not get the Republican nomination if he runs. Uh, I think he wants to run. Yeah, he does. It's really, really up to the Republican Party uh, to decide whether or not he runs. And uh, I hope they have uh, the courage and whatever else is needed to say no. In your book, A Sense of Balance, you talk about the recent 2022 election saying it was the most grudging, unenthusiastic change of them all. And I, I was watching the TV coverage that night and they turned to you, the TV, and you were on talking and you looked accepting of Morrison's loss, but utterly devastated and in shock of the potential loss at the time because we didn't know of Josh Frydenberg's seat. Can you talk to us about that? Well, I, I accepted that we were probably... Yeah. Gaitles, it was still a bit... But, but Scott Morrison had called it. And uh, I thought the, on a personal level, the biggest loss... Uh, for us was was Josh Frydenberg. Uh, Josh was an excellent treasurer and he was, in my judgment, he was the standout performer mm. uh, in the former government. Now, I acknowledge that he has remained close to me. He briefly worked for me when I was Prime Minister, and but he did many other things. And I expect and hope that Josh will try and come back to politics He's now got a job in the private sector, and that's very sensible. He's very bright. He's a great networker, and he did a good job as treasurer. Mm. And, of course, um, he, he spent a lot of money bailing out the economy, but he was he spent that with the full approval and support of the then Labor opposition. I, I hear uh, the, the new treasurer, Dr Chalmers, saying that They've inherited a lot of debt. Well, it was an inherited debt that they co-authored. Mm. They wanted the debt. They wanted even more. Uh, let, let us not have any hypocrisy from the new government about how unexpectedly we discovered this terrible overhang. They were exhorting the former government to spend money. And I think the government had to spend a lot of money because normally recessions happen against the will and the efforts of governments. But on this occasion, a couple of years ago, the government caused the recession. It closed the show down in order to save lives and protect health. In those circumstances, it had an obligation to mm. bring the economy back to life and it was supported at the time by the Labor Party. I'm, I'm very sorry he lost, but that does happen in politics. Um, and um, it was very clear that um, people wanted a change of government, but yes. they were very unsure as to who they wanted to replace it with. That's why I said it was grudging. I mean, normally when there's a change of government, there's a sense of excitement. I mean, I accept that in 2007, much and all as I didn't like Mr Rudd winning, there was a sense of oh, this is something new and he'll be different and fresh and and, uh, and, you know, and I, I had views, but I accepted that was the mood. And, and his first months, there was that sense of excitement. There's not, there wasn't that mm. at the change. And, of course, the primary vote of the Labor Party was 32%. Yes. When I won in 1996, our primary vote was 47%. And when Kevin Rudd won in 19, 2007, 
I think his primary vote was 43 or 44%. So there's a huge difference. Now that people went in all sorts of directions. Some of them went to the Labor Party, but a lot went elsewhere. Mm. When you reflect on your time as PM, is there anything you regret or think you could have done better? Well, I often I often rather facetiously say that I, I regret very much allowing the Pakistani army to talk me into bowling in, on the <laughs> yes. mountains of Kashmir. But uh, look, there are obviously some things I, I I I think I probably made a mistake in in the in the final work choices in mm. not with the, the overall scheme of things with industrial relations. I defend very strongly what I did. I think we. The weakening of the no disadvantage test was an error. I don't think it would have altered the outcome. And there were incidents where I, you know, a couple of occasions I probably gave speeches where I lost uh, my sense of balance. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, I mean, look, you have to accept that when you've been in power for a long time and you've voted out, that a combination of things has occurred. Usually it's an accumulation. Mm. I felt that 2007, people weren't angry with the government. They just were coming to the end of a long book, which they by and large enjoyed, but they were just looking for the last few pages so they could get on to something else. And uh, that was the, the mood in the community. It wasn't hostility, but there were a lot of people unhappy with this. And I accepted the whole time I was in government, um, uh, a sizable chunk of the population wanted to see the back of me. I accept that. Yeah. That applies with any government. When you look back at those 11 years, I wonder, what are you most proud of? Well, I'm proud of the fact that we uh, left behind a, a nation that was uh, stronger, prouder mm. and more prosperous than it had been when we were elected in uh, 1996. I'm especially proud of what we did with guns. Mm. I'm very proud of what we did with um, um, the economy. I mean, the economy was in very good shape when we left. Uh, I was very proud of what we were able to do with um, uh, in, in a difficult area. I'm very proud that we, we embraced the intervention in the Northern Territory because uh, uh, it mm. remains the case now that uh, the conditions for Indigenous people in that part of Australia are completely unacceptable. And there's been a failure mm. of, of governments, both, federal, both territorial and, and federal, and I felt that intervention was needed. Uh, and I remain to this day very uh, supportive of it. I think it was a great shame that... Um, the incoming Labor government over time watered the intervention down. I think the decisions taken by the Territory government about alcohol restrictions are quite appalling. Mm. They're justifiably attacked by many Indigenous leaders. And I know there's a lot of debate about the voice and so forth, and you can let people, let people have that debate. But in the end, uh, the only way you can respond to those conditions is to um, redouble all efforts to improve the health, law and order, educational and employment outcomes of Indigenous people because that's the root problem. That's not going to be solved by putting words in the Constitution. I'm not saying you can't put words in the Constitution, but there's too much of a mood at the moment, well, this is the way we fix Indigenous affairs. It's not the way we fix Indigenous affairs. And I think the new um, uh, senator, Jacinda Price, has said that and said it very eloquently. And, and she's an Indigenous woman. She comes from the territory, understands mm. conditions on the ground. And what she's saying is, is, is that that is, whatever is done in that sort of symbolic constitutional area is not going to fix things. What will fix things is to have more police, is to have better health, better employment opportunities uh, and and uh, that's the way you deal with the incidents of domestic violence and maltreatment of children. If you were still in power, what would you be doing in there to help? Look, it's impossible 
to give a comprehensive answer to that because I'm not across all of the detail. Yes. I just I can state the general principle, uh, but in the end, it, it 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 will be a terrible mistake, and it will do great injustice to Indigenous people if this whole debate about the voice is seen in its outcome, the solution mm. to the Indigenous problems, it won't be. What's your greatest hope for society today? Well, my greatest hope is that um, uh, uh, children in their teens and early 20s, children of young men and women will grow up with the same opportunities that I had. I mean, mm. I had... This country has been very kind to me and has been very kind to most people who were born here or who made it their home. And I, I want that to continue. So I'm, when you look at the balance sheet of this country, it's very positive. Mm. We're stable, we're cohesive. Uh, we are still a largely egalitarian society. There are gaps, there are people in dire poverty and we can always improve things. But we're in a much better shape on that front than most other countries. And we are welcoming to people. There's a lot of debate about whether we should be more welcoming or whatever, but if you look at the comparisons, we've been very welcoming to people. So I would like an Australia uh, that, that offers the hope and opportunity that I was able to enjoy. Now, obviously, most of the hope and opportunity I was given came from the care of my parents, and that applies still to most people. But above and beyond that, you do need to be born into a society that offers people job opportunities. Mm. Now, job opportunities were very good when I left school because I'd been born at the end of the 1930s and there was a fertility trough produced by the Great Depression, which meant that people coming onto the labour market uh, 16, 18 years after that uh, had more opportunities. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? Oh, oh, oh. Never forget other people. Mm. You know, the golden rule, of, you know, do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's very good advice. That's very good advice. How have you used that? Well, you can use it in your life. Um, how you deal with people, uh, you can be successful uh, without grinding the other person into the ground and uh, you can equally care for others as you want them to look after you. And if we have that kind of society, then um, we'll be successful. Yeah. What's the lesson, if you look back at your time in, in as, as the Prime Minister, that you think has taken you the longest to learn? I could stab it and say that um, uh, it, I think it's very important to recognise that uh, all political parties are a coalition. I call the Liberal Party the broad church. I had very and have very conservative views on some, thing, some issues but some liberal classical liberal views on others, and um, I think making sure that that principle applies in the operations of parties is very important. Mm. What is a life of greatness to you? Well, it depends. I mean, I think of the great <coughs> figures of history. Uh, they're, 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 they're the lives of greatness as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'd, I think you can always um, teach by example and uh, the people I've regarded as the great figures of history are uh, those who live lives of greatness. I regard um, Jesus of Nazareth as being a, a great figure whose influence has been extraordinary on the world. I think of, uh, in um, I think in recent centuries, I think of Winston Churchill. Mm. I think, you know, I don't presume to put him in the same category or anybody, but uh, I do think that... Um, he was he was a very great figure. I I thought in more recent times, um, and these are very political comments, but I thought Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were mm. 
remarkable leaders. I thought Nelson Mandela was extraordinary. I think anybody who endured uh, what he endured and survived and, and had such generosity of spirit towards his um, former uh, capital was, was remarkable. Mm. He showed a, a wisdom and spirituality almost. It was quite extraordinary. He was extraordinary. Mr Howard, the 11 years you ran this country, I was a younger lady and I always remember feeling proud that you were our leader. Thank you for your dedication to Australia and its people. You are remembered in a lot of our minds with a big heart. It's been an absolute honour to talk to you today. Thank you. Enjoy the discussion. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.